0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.
1: Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, phone Walker. In this episode, I'm speaking with Carl Betts on the route of improvement. Carl Betts is no stranger to the podcast. And in this episode, we're going to be speaking around the, the anatomy of quality improvements and some of the pitfalls that occur along the way. So Carl is a paramedic and has been for over 10 years, and is the quality improvement lead based in Sheffield working for the ambulance service. So what we wanted to do in this conversation is look at the pitfalls uh, that we can fall into when examining quality improvements, but also look at some of the biases that can preclude improvement. We also wanted to look at the root cause analysis and how that occurs, look at why the data is important and why data collection is important. We also wanted to look at pre- and post-implementation analysis and why that features uh, in quality improvement, And then we also wanted to look at some of the projects that that Carl's been involved with um, and how that might translate into practice. So welcome, Carl, to the podcast.
0: Hiya, how are we doing? Thanks for having me back.
1: Can I just um, kick off by um, just, I guess, summarizing, you've been in the QI role for a while now you have really sort of started to see some fundamental elements of quality improvement could you just maybe speak to an overview of quality improvement and how sort of it might have changed your perspective on quality improvements changed since you began the post
0: so I started my journey as a within quality improvement as a quality improvement fellow which was a new position um in the trust that I work in um that's as part of the, the, the strategy was to try and embed a ground-up approach culture into quality improvement in that improvement comes from all aspects of the organisation. Uh, it's not something what's uh, forced upon people. It's something with the, the culture that it grows from within. Um, and the specialists on the ground are the ones who know the, special, the specialisations of their game, and they're the ones who know the intricacies of the work. So therefore, they're the ones who are best suited to offer um, potential change. Um, so on that journey, I started having very sort of little knowledge of quality improvement, hence the reason it was a fellowship as an education pathway. Um, however, I was someone who was a, a thinker and a doer and a questioner, uh, which are all key elements to being a quality improvement operative, really. Um, now, in terms of how it's changed, I don't necessarily think quality improvement's changed for me, but my knowledge of how quality improvement works and some of the pitfalls surrounding it is knowledge that I've gained and it's knowledge that I've gained from doing and from learning um and it's not just for one person to do it's a sort of cultural a cultural journey Um, and that's one of the biggest things that I've picked up about how quality improvement works because it can't work with one or two people um it's fundamentally about an organization and a cultural challenge to to change the perspectives um yeah so it hasn't really changed as a role or qi hasn't really changed it's been around a long time but my understanding of how it fits in the wider health system um is just been gained through knowledge
1: so what i'm hearing there carl is that it really takes a a group of people to really buy into quality improvements you know not one not one person it's it, it takes a system to save a life, and I guess it takes a system to change a system, and uh, but buying in sort of ownership into that system. But as an adjoining to that, could I just maybe get you to speak to some pitfalls improvement that you see people fall into, and maybe actually that you've fallen into in the past.
0: So one of the biggest one of the biggest pitfalls is people who are interested in sort of quality improvement are actually questioners. The people who question current practice, the people who question why do we do this, why do we do that, and it doesn't have to be all clinical things. Quality improvements about every aspect of an organisation which directly affects a patient, because at the end of everything we do, we're patient centred and patient focused. But one of the problems with being a group of people who like to question things, we also like to come up with solutions, and we can sometimes be very much solution driven. And the risk for being solution driven is that you believe that your solution will solve the problem that you're wanting to solve however the question you've got to ask yourself is the problem that you're seeing in front of you actually the problem or is it a symptom of the problem and by just going down an idea that you've got that you think will mend something are you going to actually be wasting a lot of time effort potential money um To actually not fix the problem you think you're going to fix, you're just going to fix a symptom of it. Um, And that is one of the big pitfalls that people do actually fall into because they don't take the time to actually understand the problem. Um, The organisations as well, as in terms of a pitfall, have to be ready for this change. They have to be ready for this cultural journey because, like I said in, in my previous comments, a single small group of people can't really do a massive amount in terms of a big organization. Um, You can make small scale changes within your small field, but actually you have to have the buy-in from the organization for it to, for it to work. Um, And also people should never force change. Um, Change is about a journey for people to, to, to come on. And if you, if people don't understand that journey or people don't understand the changes that you're trying to make, the chances are you haven't involved them. And if you haven't involved them, you have to ask the question, well, should I have involved them? Because if they're a specialist in an area that you're trying to make changes to, um, you should be listening to them. And again, that's a pitfall that m- many, many healthcare settings fall into.
1: It's really interesting you say that, Carl, actually, because I'm I'm trying to, in my own practice, and actually as an interviewer, trying to listen more intently um before i speak and i not have the next thing to say in my mind but actually truly listen to the guest and what what they're what they're saying and i think you saying that as a posture of of your role where by actually the first move is actually to listen and to do some active listening before you start start acting um is really interesting because i i guess it lends itself to like you said appreciation of maybe bias appreciation of Uh, blind spots um, and appreciation of the the true problem I I I come from very much like you you know from uh, clinical practice originally and I think moving more into the medical technology world and other worlds as well problems I I was looking for quick solutions and operate that used to be my cadence of change was quick solution quick solution but actually as you were saying, some of these bigger fundamental changes uh, actually take longer to embed and longer to longer to come to fruition, actually. And it, it does take patience. It takes a different posture. But just coming back to that kind of those blind spots and those biases, Carl, I heard you speak to a really interesting story, actually, on bias. Um, and I wonder if you could just, just recollect that for us, because it really did, for me, make me stop and think about bias.
0: Uh, yeah, so this is a story of uh, of some assessment work that happened in uh, actually the Second World War. And the, the premise of the story is around um, the Allies needed to look at the damage that was being caused to Allied aircrafts when they were on uh, missions over over-occupied territory. Um and the specialists in the field at this point were the, uh, were the aircraft technicians and the aircraft maintenance uh, specialists. And what they decided to do was they needed to try and gather some evidence to see what they could do to stop aircrafts being shot down. And they came up with this concept. And because they were the specialists and because everybody believed in this concept, this is what they went with, that every time an aircraft landed, they'd assess uh, the damage marks on the actual aircraft and actually see where the damage was uh, being seen most prevalent and then what they'd do is they'd do something about it and that would be potentially put a stronger uh, armor plate in on the aircraft or make some structural changes to the aircraft to make it stronger now with anything we do there's um there's potential uh knock-on effects balance and measures we call them in quality improvement and if you make an aircraft heavier, heavier you're going to make it uh, slower. You're going to make it use more fuel. It's going to be able to let, carry less uh, munitions. It's going to be less manoeuvrable. So there's loads of problems that by making something stronger uh, is going to have a real knock-on effect and actually make the potentially make the problem worse. But actually, these guys were completely blindsided because what they noticed was damage to uh, aircrafts that were coming home. Now, uh, uh, a statistician was asked to look at this problem as well. And he came in with clear outside eyes, with no bias. He understood numbers. He understood figures and stats. And one blinding piece of evidence that he noticed was that there was never, ever any damage to any of the engines. And that question was posed. And then the answer was assessed. And it's very, very simple when you think about it. The aircraft that didn't make it home potentially all had their engines. Um, shot to pieces. So actually, the aim of the the project was to increase the number of aircrafts coming home. But actually, what they may have done was not solve the problem by putting loads of armour over the holes that they can see, because that actually may have made aircrafts be shot down more often because they were heavier and slower. What they needed to do was protect the places that there wasn't any evidence that these aircrafts were being shot i.e. the engines, because they were the ones that weren't making it home. And that just shows that if you have a, a, an idea of what you want to solve, sometimes you can be blind to the evidence because you don't look at it properly because you believe that your idea that we'll solve this problem will actually solve it. But actually, because you don't get to the root cause of it, it just makes the problem worse.
1: That's great um story and anecdote really around around bias and just looking at the whole and the unseen data. Could you speak to some of the biases you've had to work through or indeed that the the work the QI workers brought up uh within within practice, Carl?
0: So again, it's about this solution-driven approach. I was a solution-driven person that I want to solve this problem that I can see right in front of me, and I've got an idea that will solve it. Now I want my idea to work. So therefore you can make your hypothesis fit the story that you want it to fit um, or the story fit the hypothesis you want um, to prove to yourself that you're on the right track, but actually you're not really proving anything to yourself. All you're doing is kidding yourself that you believe you're going down the right avenue. Um, the, The issue we sometimes have is, well, I've got this idea. Let's have a crack. And then what happens is it inadvertently fails because you're not looking at the right, um, the the, the, the right parts of the problem. And that's generally because you haven't done any root cause analysis or you haven't done enough in-depth root cause analysis to actually get to the point of the aim that you're trying to, or the problem that you're trying to solve to make a a positive aim.
1: So looking at root cause analysis actually, um, and some of the issues that the, am um, service across the across the country actually and not even just across the country actually across multiple countries are facing around sort of these, these the bottleneck uh, in hospital and and indeed discharging patients could you maybe speak to some of the underlying issues that you see um because i i think fundamentally we are all in, interconnected and and it's really hard to pass us apart when the, the, if, if and, and there's, there's secondary and tertiary effects of issues down the line that affect us through this interconnected nature. Could you maybe just speak to some of your perspectives on root cause analysis for the, for the current
0: climate? So one of the, one of the big things is we we have to accept the fact that there's systematic failings throughout. The health sector i don't think any anybody is blind to that fact that there is fundamental problems um that have been ongoing for a long time that are very very much now coming to a head um to the point where the nhs and the health sector is is at a critical point really um however it can be a bit heavy on the mind thinking of how massive the problem is. And therefore, because it's so big, it's very, very difficult to tackle such a big problem that's so multifaceted. However, with that, every single organisation that's involved within the healthcare setting and every department within every organisation and every team within that that, that, that um, organisation can make changes to their process and their systems which will gain marginal gains. Now, marginal gains don't have to be huge, you know, huge big ticket items. Uh, they don't have to be, we're gonna solve the, the flow um, problem through every sector of the hospital or through every sector of um, social services. However, you can make changes that will make a difference. And if you can make enough of these smaller changes, then you will have a profound effect, but you need the permission to actually make them changes. Um, and that's one of the one of the big issues in the fact that the workforce is tired, uh, not just in the ambulance service, in the health sector as a whole. Um, it's run on goodwill for a long, long time. And it's actually the staff are the fundamental thing that keep the NHS and the health sector working. Um, and they are the ones who know what needs to change and potentially how to make the changes. But what they haven't got is the space to actually do it. That being the the mental space, the time space, because everybody's running at capacity. And actually what we need is we need that time to allow people the time and the space to make the changes to actually sort some of these problems out. Now, I say, like I said, we're never going to necessarily solve the big ticket issues as a small QI team or a small improvement organisation However, we can play an instrumental part in changing organisational thinking and organisational culture. So, sadly, we're never going to fix the whole of the NHS in a one But there are small issues that we can all look at to make positive change.
1: So, Carl, when you talk about incremental change, I absolutely agree that there is you know small changes that can be made in, in everyone's practice. I think you know this, this the, and the heart of that is that this every day is a school day, there's this opportunity to get better and to learn from every situation. But just looking at metadata for a second and big data, uh, it seems to be coming more central within both ambulance service strategy. Um, there's the uh, ambulance data. Uh, at the moment, which is being accrued across all the NHS ambulance services, to look at uh, mobility as a service, so just patterns of pathology, patterns of transport, patterns of 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 wait times, indeed, and and where and how demand is is skewed across country. Could you maybe just speak to how important data is for your job, um, and indeed the anatomy of quality improvement?
0: So data within quality improvement is actually fundamental. Uh, you, you know, it is a key part of everything we do because everything revolves around measures. Um, however, there's a caveat to that. And the difference between quality improvement data and, um, say, research data or, like, um, metadata that, that that you were talking about is within quality improvement, the, the amount of data we need is, we use the term, just enough Okay, you need to prove your baseline. You need to prove what you're looking at. And then you need to show enough data that allows you to prove whether your um, change has had a positive effect or hasn't had the outcome that you were you were you were hoping for. Um, So quality improvement is supposed to be quick. It's supposed to be. We've noticed a problem. We're going to evaluate the problem to get to the root cause. But once we've got the root cause, we can then look for um, a potential change idea. We can put an aim together that has a, a smart aim with a time on it. Um, and then what we can do is we can run a test on something. But actually, we can run a test for a short period of time measure the data see what's happening with it but then the critical thing with quality improvement that is very different to other methodological styles is it doesn't stop what you do is you then review it you then look at it action it make changes and then go again and run a test again so what you're doing is you're doing continual change cycles trying to get to the perfect outcome now, sometimes you'll never, you'll, you'll never get to the perfect outcome, but you've got to aim up there. But what we don't do is just do a one hit implementation, stick it in, have it, that's it, done. What we do is we put something in, let it run, review it, evaluate it, and then look what changes you can make. Um, and that is one of the big differences um, because quality improvement, it's good, to let things happen and it's really good for them necessarily not to work we are sometimes scared in in health settings that actually if we try something it doesn't work it's seen as a failure and that's like a, a complete complete wrong way to think about things if we try something and we've got a hunch about something that doesn't work it's learning and the important thing is is as long as you learn from it and you make a change and you do something again to change it and then measure it again that's absolutely valuable. And that learning needs to be shared. You need to be holding your hand up and saying, you know what, we've tried this and it didn't work. And it's really good that it didn't work because we've learned a lot from it. We haven't wasted any time. We haven't wasted any resources because what we've done is evaluated it and made a change and done it again. Um, And that's one of the fundamental differences between QI and other sort of research improvement." ideas in the fact that it's really quick and it's really sort of snappy um, so yeah it's the, the the importance of the data is you need just enough to prove what you're looking at and you need just enough to prove that the change you've made is having the effect that you want it to have or the effect that you're aiming it to have.
1: So where the rubber hits the road here, Carla, I remember you speaking about Schwartz rounds and implementing Schwartz rounds into, into practice and saying, actually, you know, the uptake isn't great, but you know, we're, we're going to push ahead and we're going to engage. And actually for the people that have attended the Schwartz rounds, which are, you know, psychological debriefs and talking about how your week's been and Maybe talking about the psychological burden of the week um, and of the shift um, is actually quite restorative, and just putting yourself in different people's shoes. Could you could you maybe just speak to that because to to embed in this this rounds because that was that was maybe or maybe not uh, a, a, an example of something that worked well or that maybe didn't get the engagement, but you had to try it to to see if it worked.
0: So, yeah, so Schwartz Rounds is an interesting, an interesting topic to talk about in the fact that when I spoke earlier on about this is a cultural journey for an organisation, about improvement um, and about making positive change. You also have to be aware that, like I said, the organisation has to be ready for things. Now, there's certain things that there's never going to be a perfect time to implement certain things and talking about emotional well-being and opening up about your feelings as a human being to other human beings within the ambulance service is definitely new ground for many. Uh the ambulance sector has always been seen as you don't really talk about these things. You have a bit of a laugh and a giggle about it, but you don't really you don't really open up about how the work is affecting you. Whereas now we're sort of hugely realizing that it plays a massive part and Schwartz rounds is an ability for a group of people to have them emotional discussions in a safe space. Um, now, if you believe in something enough, you've just got to keep plugging away at it. Um, and hopefully over time, if you just keep plugging away and get small, even small groups on board, what you'll end up with is their marginal gains again. You'll get small groups on board. And then hopefully over time, as long as you keep plugging away at it, you'll end up with a community. And that's very similar to the world of QI in the fact that if you can get a group of people, all who believe in this methodology, have utilised it, who can see the real benefit of it, the more you can drip feed into that community, the more the community will grow because people will start talking about it. Um, And it's about making everything we do safe, you know, if somebody makes an improvement and it doesn't quite go to plan, they should feel safe that there's going, to be no, um, there's going to be no recriminations about it. There's going to be no problems with it. There's going to be no sort of disciplinary action because something hasn't worked. Um, it's understanding that it's safe and it's safe to have these conversations and it's safe to try things in a controlled method that um, that is good to do and empower these people to make these changes.
1: So, Carl, you were talking about pre and post implementation analysis. And in a way, I can just relate to sort of a debrief, they call it a case review or a, a DD death and disability, where you, you know, post hoc or, or retrospectively look at the case, you dissect it, you look at what went well, and then look at the challenges and, and what you do differently. And I've I think some of my the best learning I've ever had have been through debriefs really and that's other people leading the debriefs but letting the room speak into the into the debrief so letting everyone speak into what happened, because there's surefire things that I missed uh, that other people picked up on that were really useful and really useful for me to hear and um, so just looking at this pre and post implementation analysis has there been anything in the past which has sort of surprised you through other people's feedback?
0: Yeah, it's really, it, there's no one specific example of this, but one thing that's key to know is that everybody sees things through a different lens, um, and it's really key that when you're looking at any potential quality improvement work that you make sure you get the people on board who have the ability to look at the things that you might not see. So, for instance, my, my there's certain things within my skill set Um, I'm very much just a doer. I just like getting on with stuff and doing stuff. It's always been my nature. Um, And because of that, I know for a fact I can sometimes miss finer detail. You know, I appreciate that and I accept it. And I know that is me. So what I've got is I've got a group of people who I know who are absolutely bang on point at looking at detail. So therefore, whenever I'm looking at any information I have this team around me of friends and knowledgeable people who will look at the same things I'm looking at and look at it from a completely different mindset. And by seeing that different mindset and by having them conversations engaged, what you get is actually a full picture as opposed to the picture that I see or that I want to see. And it helps limit the bias that we've talked about, but it also allows some form of legitimacy that actually you've collaborated around this and it's not just one person's opinion on what you're you're talking about. You've got data that's been looked at, that's been analysed. You've got people who've spoken to the staff involved who actually work on the process on a daily basis. You've got them involved looking at the actual writing up of new processes because they're the ones who are going to be doing the job. Um, And it's all about making sure that you've got a team around you embedded with you so you're all in it but you're all allowed to say what you see Um, and it's that legitimacy to basically have an open forum that nothing's off the table that everything's fair game because if it's not that's the bit you're going to miss and that is the fundamental point that you're probably going to need that you've now just missed
1: so talking about collaboration you've recently been collaborating with a local hospital in the region just with workflow and different different aspects of of making both both um, ambulance staff's life better and indeed the hospital's uh life better and really interestingly as you said uh, opening up to collaboration means you have to both think differently and accept there is different institutional mindsets, different institutional ways of doing things and ways of thinking and, and, and moving. And I've certainly experienced that in the past. Could you maybe speak to how you found collaborating outside of the institution?
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because every organization has its own, has its own ways of doing things and it has its own cultures and, and, them cultures, are that that's what that, that particular organisation has, or whichever organisations we work with. Just like we have our culture within our organisation who I work for. Um, and sometimes them cultures are quite different, but one thing they all have in common, especially in a healthcare setting, is there's, there's patients at the end of everything. So it doesn't matter which department you're working with, we are a part of a patient's journey, as is the hospital's. Um, So therefore, the fundamental route that keeps us all together is the patient. But then what you have to do is work out, okay, so how do our processes interlink with your processes and how do your systems talk to our systems? Or, as the case may be, how do our systems not talk to each other, which is one of the problems? Um, You can't find that out unless you talk to each other. And you can't find that out unless you observe and you experience what's going on. So one thing that people don't spend enough or put enough emphasis on is actually the power of observation, the power of just going in and watching how things work, the power of just watching how systems flow, where the the, the bottlenecks are, where the jams are, and um, the reasoning for. The, the bottlenecks and the jams um because it's really fascinating because one thing we do we always talk about data as numbers and figures and graphs and charts but actually you can gain an awful lot of data just by watching people watching where they walk watching how much what time's wasted walking around a department aimless looking for something because there's not a sign to say where something is um And they're then marginal gains. You don't have to make massive changes to have a real sort of a real positive impact. Um, But that only comes with collaboration because an ambulance service can't just randomly walk into an ED and start making changes. Likewise, an ED can't walk onto an ambulance uh, service and start making changes to our processes because neither of us fully understand each other's ways of working and each other's problems. So collaborative working is key because we've talked about balancing measures and unintended consequences previously in the the, the previous um, part of this podcast, is that I may make a change to my organisation or my work stream, but because I haven't considered how that will affect another area's work stream, I may have well just made a blinding improvement for my area, but I've just caused absolutely merry mayhem for another part of the organisation or another part of a collaborative organisation that I haven't even considered. Now, when you've got collaborative working with people who understand their own systems, you can then make them decisions with the knowledge that if I implement change X, I shouldn't see any unintended consequences to any other parts of this system. Uh, But again, if you're not sure, you've got to try these things, look at them, measure it, and then amend it and redo it again, doing a plan, do, study, act cycle. So so yeah, collaboration is all about understanding, um, understanding cultures, understanding systems, processes, constraints, and the reasons why certain processes might be in place. Um, like you talked about earlier on, you talked about reviews and after action reviews, certain processes may be in place because it's a governance issue because of an issue that's happened previously. Um, that may need reviewing, but you can't just take something out that's been placed into a department because of a, a specific reason. So it is quite complicated, but it's great fun because we're all in it for the right reasons and we all want to make things better. Um, and having an understanding that now have another hospital or another department or another um, section of the health service works is hugely positive um, and just gives you a, global overview of the problems everybody faces but also the positive work they do
1: so carl you've been in quality improvement for a while now and within that and this is kind of an adjoiner to your last answer really around unseen secondary and tertiary effects of your primary outcome or indeed your implementation could you maybe speak to risk and uh, sort of how your perspective on risk has changed because like you said it could actually incrementally increase risk in another area if uh, but actually in a in, in in a way which is unseen to you could you could you maybe yeah speak to risk and indeed how it might have changed your perspective uh since your time as the quality improvement lead
0: yes i don't think my perspective of risk has changed very much um But one thing what I have now got is a much greater understanding of um, the perspective that governance places on the risk and how the risk can be mitigated by the levels of governance that we utilise. Now, for me, governance is a hugely important uh, part of our work to protect everybody. Um, But I think there is a fine line between too much and too little governance. And that's a line that's very difficult to tread because previously we, we we've worked in very governance heavy organizations however sometimes there can be so much governance around things that it can be a real dampener on quality improvement change because it can't happen quick enough because we have to go through quite long detailed governance processes to get any potential changes in now what we have to consider when we're working in quality improvement we're not actually changing things that will necessarily implement what we're doing is we're testing and then once we're happy that the testing is safe and that the testing on a very small scale is um is positive and we'll get the actual desired outcome to our aim we can then start spreading it And we can spread it into different areas where you might need to make slightly different changes within that area because it's right in one area of an organisation. doesn't mean that when you try and implement it in another area, you're going to have the same exact effects because their processes and systems and their cultures may be slightly different. Um, So. It's really important to have the governance to manage the risk. But it's also really important not to allow the governance to stifle the potential change. And like I said, that's a very, very fine line that is very much a judgment call on an organization. But I think over time, as cultures within organizations feel safer, then I think that governance may over time lessen slightly um, to the the current uh, practices we have at present.
1: So, Carlos, we're coming to land on the conversation. Could you just maybe speak to a few take messages around the current issues, sort of what's happening in the background from a QI perspective that you'd uh, like to mention?
0: Yeah. So, we're all about um, we're we're all part of fixing these these problems within the system. Um, we've all got potential solutions, whether it be big or small, um, and. What we need to do is not wait for these things to happen. Um, I know I might be sort of pie in the sky thought here, but we all know in our areas what needs change and we all know the, the things that may make the difference. But what we need is we need the 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 health systems to actively encourage and empower people in that work stream to make them changes and deliver them changes and allow them the space to grow. Um because when you're given the empowerment to actually make these changes, it'll bring your team closer together um, by working on a, on a joint piece of work where everybody's got the same desire. Um, because the NHS is basically being held up by the specialists in its work streams, i.e. the people who were actually doing the jobs. Um, and without them, it would all come crashing down. And they're the ones with the plethora of knowledge that we should be tapping into all the time. And they need permission to be able to to have a go at doing stuff. And they need the permission to be safe, knowing that they can have a go at things in a safe manner. They can try things, they can test things. And if it doesn't work, then they get a pat on the back and say, right, let's have another look. Because there were some real positives in that. It hasn't quite got the outcome you wanted, but let's run it again and have a look. Let's make some changes. And to make changes long term, these changes can't be pushed down from senior leadership teams. They have to be supported from the ground up. So the senior leadership teams give express permission for people doing the job to do the do. And then what it's staff let change. So people will see that actually the changes come from the workforce and therefore people have more legitimacy about it because it's come from their own. Um, And actually, as a strong leadership team, just to say, okay, that's great. Have a look at this problem. Do what you need to do and feedback and let me know how you've got on is super powerful. Uh, And I think long term will be the fundamental way that Everyday business should be happening, so yeah, my take home message for everybody is we are all part of we are all part of the ability of fixing some of these problems um you just need the permission and the support to do it um so if you can get that, go for it because it's really interesting and it's really satisfying and it's really fulfilling
1: and to your point as well car, you know the the ownership really is is systemic when it comes from the ground up and when there's empowerment and the tools to to actually orchestrate change so absolutely i agree with everything you've just said actually and i i think that's where lasting change comes from because like you said it's the workforce which are which are seeing the pain points every day they're experiencing the pain points every day and then they can hopefully be the solution to the to the problem uh, because they see all links in the chain which is, uh, which is powerful. Carl, listen, I just want to say thank you for your last hour. Um, your perspectives are always um, not only welcome here, but just absolutely fascinating. And um, I always love chatting with you. So thank you, Carl.
0: Thank you very much. Look forward to, an- to another episode at some point soon. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.